Climax Scott's fight song fades, and more on that in just a second. Welcome to the latest edition of Climax the Podcast, Love Letter to a Small Town. Per usual, I'm your host, proud 1998 Climax Scott's junior senior high school grad Kevin Harvey, and hopefully this is a welcome back to a lot of our listeners. Last week's episode was all things Memorial Day, Founders Day, with a meeting in the middle with Julie Tiller. We talked so many things about the past and the history of Founders Day and Memorial Day, and we talked about things coming up. If you haven't checked that out yet, check it out in the archives at ClimaxThePodcast.com. Speaking of ClimaxThePodcast.com, let's do the business up front as per usual here on Climax the Podcast. For all things pertaining to listening to this show, checking out our YouTube channel, following us on social media, it's all at ClimaxThePodcast.com. For tech-savvy folks, there's buttons to subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify. All in all, there's like 35 ways to listen to this show. For those who are less tech-savvy, if you go to ClimaxThePodcast.com, you can click the big Listen to the Show button. In fact, I think it says click right here in all caps. And you can listen to the show right there in your web browser. No emails, no passwords, no usernames. Nothing to forget, I can't make it much easier to remember than ClimaxThePodcast.com. You'll also find links there to merchandise that helps support keeping this show going. You'll see a button for donations. Again, no guilt, no pressure. Some people had asked me if there were ways that they could help out the show, so I wanted to provide some options where they could do just that. And Climax the Podcast is brought to you in part by Kristen Wachowski from State Farm. Kristen's office is in Battle Creek, just off the intersection of Columbia and 20th Street. She's right across from Ollie's and behind Chicago Title. I've known Kristen a long time, and I am more than happy to support her as she has supported many of my antics over the years, including Climax the Podcast. But when it comes to insurance, you want somebody you can trust. I've known Kristen a long time, and she's got my wholehearted endorsement. So if you have any needs for you, your family, your loved ones, your friends, life insurance, business insurance, condo insurance, renter's insurance, homeowner's insurance, auto insurance, you can get a call from my pal Kristen today, 269-968-5130, or you can get in touch with her through her website, callkristin.com. That's callkristin, K-R-I-S-T-I-N.com. This show would not be possible without information and archives made available to us from Prairie Historical Society. For several decades, they have documented the history of the towns of Climax and Scotts, There's just so much good information in the treasure trove that is the history room up at Lawrence Memorial Library. And PHS is there to help you figure out things about your family, learn more about the town. There is a whole lot of history, and I'll tell you, it's a lot of fun to go up there and snoop around and see what you can learn about our towns. You can also become an annual member of PHS. It's only $15 for the year, and that will not only support PHS and help keep it going, but that'll also get you their six-times-a-year newsletter. 
Every other month, PHS puts out a really fun newsletter with some deep dives into the different buildings, businesses, and families around the town. You can send your payment for that membership to Prairie Historical Society, 107 North Main Street, P.O. Box 82, Climax, Michigan, and of course the zip code 49034. Moving away from the business end of the podcast, there's a little bit of sadness this week. I learned over the weekend that my old pal Bob Hendershot passed away. I know I've mentioned it a time or two on the podcast that I worked for Climax Scott's Community Schools in the summer of 1999, and a huge part of that was practically hand-in-hand with Bob. I've got a lot of fond memories of that summer, some that are fond for not necessarily the right reasons, like the locker debacle. That's a tale that's coming to this podcast another time. But I got to know Bob quite a bit. He showed a genuine interest in basically everything I had going on. I was just starting in the pro wrestling industry at the time, so he'd always want to know, what am I doing? What goofy town am I going to? Or what did I get? What kind of trouble did I get into the prior weekend as we'd get back to school on Monday? Bob taught me the ropes of being a custodian at CS. We kind of got it down to a science real quickly about the division of labor, what rooms I would clean, what he would clean. We'd both kind of do our own things, but we'd meet up a couple of times a night, check in, and I'll tell you my fondest memories were the breaks. The assignments toward the end of that school year, now I say summer for me, I was a college kid, so it wasn't quite summer for school. So a lot of those second shift evenings, Bob and I would have the high school, and then George Rowe was back at the intermediate school, and then Steve Yerby was kind of going between all the different buildings. And of course, Dan Zook, he was supervising the program, so he was in the equation. Then we had Sue Bowman was just starting out helping out that summer. And I want to say Bonnie Davis helped us a little bit when the actual summer months came along. There are so many fond memories of that summer, and that could probably be a whole episode of the podcast in and of itself. Some of my favorite memories, though, were the supper times that we would have. Bob and I would be on the deck kind of out back of the high school connected to what I think is still probably the custodian's office. At least it was at the time in the late 90s. George would come up from the intermediate school. We'd be outside because George would need his breath of fresh air if you catch my drift. And we'd just sit out there shooting the breeze, talking about things we loved, people we loved. And I kind of say all those things to circle back to this point. For anything I could tell you about Bob Hendershot, he absolutely adored his family. From everything I could see working with Bob, everything he did was for that family. So this episode of Climax the Podcast is dedicated to the memory of my buddy, Bob Hendershot. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned coming back to the topic of the CS Fight song. I put a post out there on Facebook, and I'm very serious about this, and I'm hoping some people respond. I want to try to get some more versions of the Climax Scott's fight song. That could be versions of different eras of Climax Scott's bands. Maybe that's individuals performing. That could be singing. That could be playing instruments. But if you have a version of the Climax Scott's fight song that you either already have recorded or that you want to record, and you would like to have that featured as the intro to this show, I'd love it if you could find a way to get that to me. All the contact information is right there on ClimaxThePodcast.com. But I would love to showcase some talents of the town playing songs that are centric to the town. Like I said, reach out. Easiest way, ClimaxThePodcast at gmail.com. Again, all other methods are on our link tree at ClimaxThePodcast.com. Before we get into this episode's main event, stay tuned after the main event. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about my very serious, very heartfelt attempt to acquire Crescent Publishing Incorporated, also known as the Climax Crescent, 
and I'm definitely going to need some help from the community, but I'm going to share what I can for now after this week's main event. Before I turn it over to the interview for this week, I want to talk about what this podcast can hopefully mean to a lot of families out there. This one I can speak a little bit more intimately to because this is actually recordings of late members of my family. Dwayne Drollett Sr., my great-grandfather, passed away five years before I was born. He died in 1975. My grandmother's voice I had not heard since 1996 when she passed. And in my family, I think only my parents and I knew that this recording existed. So when I digitized the original recording, I was able to share that with Dwayne Drollett Jr., who, by the way, is on this podcast next week, all of Dwayne's kids, several of the grandkids, but they all, some of them for the first time in many years, were hearing dad or grandpa's voice. Some of the family, myself included, this was really the first time they ever heard grandpa or great-grandpa's voice. And that's some pretty powerful stuff, and I'm hoping that as some of these historical archives are unearthed and put out into the digital realm, I'm hoping that all those floods of positive emotions and fond memories and connection to the town histories and your own family's personal histories can happen just as much for other families in the community as this show goes on as it has done for my own family. And with that, I think it's time to kick it over to Season 1, Episode 6, Another World, Another Time with Ruth Harvey and Dwayne Drollett Sr. Dwayne Drollett. In the years 1900 to 1905, the Pathmaster system of road repair was used in Climax Township. Albert White, stepfather of Terrain Drawlett, was elected Pathmaster and served the township from about the year 1900 to about 1905. The duties of the Pathmaster were to inspect the roads to lay dirt over the corduroy roads through the marshes and to keep them in as good a shape as possible. Now, this was done by assessing all farmers in the neighborhood <clears throat> by the amount of property they had. They had such an assessment that they had so much time to put in on the roads, just like we would assess them in money, but they would assess them like uh, if you didn't have too much, he was assessed to go with a team and a dump wagon and work maybe two days. If you didn't if it happened a little, he was assessed to go with a shovel and work for so long. And that's the way that they built it, that way. In other words, instead of, you bartered labor instead of instead money. Instead of money, it was no oh. money at all. That was all done by uh, just, uh, he, he had that authority by being a past master. Uh, of assessing these people. Uh, oh, he did the assessing. It oh, yeah, done he done it. it. Oh, no, he done it. Good. The Isaac Pierce Farm Home, built about 1845, was located on the north side of the railroad track and was later known as Mrs. Ransom's home. It was also known as the halfway house 
stopover for travelers from Detroit to Chicago. Another interesting item about this house is that it is supposed to have been used as a part of the Underground Railroad system, running slaves from the south north to Canada where they could be free. Anything more? Oh, Do you remember when it burned? It didn't burn when it tore down. Oh. Do you remember when it was torn down? No, not so many years ago. It was torn down by diary. Mm. And, uh, well, I would say that was not about the 1930s it was tore down. I can't connect it, but I think we lived here when it was tore down, down here. The house was torn down about yeah. 1930. Yes, the house was torn down. But it worked then, so she enough to buy a farm, buy work for Dr. Lovell, for, for a dollar and a half a day. What kind of a doctor was he, an MD, a surgeon? Oh, gosh, I don't General know. practitioner? I don't know what he was. Did he of take care I, of people here in town? Uh, I wouldn't know. That's before my oh. time. Dr. Lovell, you see, was a... No, I didn't know. No, it was no. long ago. No, he died before I came uh, Yes, but she, <coughs> they would, she would be the one then that Jenny Elwell was named after, yeah, probably. Yeah, it is, it is the one that Jenny had but the, the part of the Lovell part that I was thinking about, she worked there so many years for such a small sum and saved that money all her life and then went down and bought 40 acres of land for her brothers and sisters. Well, did you want to get anything about that old uh, the, that hotel and the, yes, yes, uh, that, that that's very interesting and uh, and you think of things that fit in, I interrupt them. Yeah, throw them in. No, I was just looking to see if there was a date anywhere on oh, that, would date this, huh? that would date this paper. Oh, I can tell you when the, uh, I looked on this picture here, when that, uh, from either a Kalamazoo or Battle Creek paper. Oh, Battle Creek. Oh, Battle Creek paper, dated 1952. Tomorrow is the 48th anniversary of one of the most disastrous fires in the history of this community. It was on the morning of May 19, 1904, that a $15,000 blaze destroyed the old Coe, C-O-E, hotel. The Willison and Aldrich hardware and implement store and dance hall and a large dwelling owned by Mrs. Josephine E. Ransom. The fire, in fact, wiped out the entire northwest corner of the village of Climax at the intersection of Main and Maple Streets. Early in the morning, Mrs. Julia E. Milliman, who lived just west of the hotel, saw flames creeping along the ridge of the building and gave the alarm. 
only a bucket brigade was available to fight the fire, and soon the old wooden structure was a seething mass of flames. The heat was so terrific that it was with the greatest difficulty that the bucket brigade was able to save the dry goods and clothing grocery store of Ivor Barclay across the road. Had the wind been in any other direction, the entire business section of the little community would have been wiped out. The hotel building was built by Isaac Pierce about 1862. Whether or not he ever operated a hotel there is not known, but records show that it was run by John O. Wilson and known as the Wilson House for a long time. Then it was purchased by Alan Riley, who traded it to Lafayette Cove for an 80-acre farm. Coe ran the hotel for many years, operating a candy and cigar store, barber shop, and bar. There was a livery barn and feeding stable at the rear. It was customary at that time for the traveling salesman to put up at the hotel, hire a rig and driver, and drive to the rural stores to sell their goods. Later, the property came into the possession of Charlie Brown, who owned it when it burned. His loss was about $2,000. Four or five stoves, two badly burned showcases, and a cream separator besides the safe were all that were saved from the hardware store, according to Mr. Willison, when he was reminiscing about the fire. All of the shelf goods and heavy implements were lost. Willison had instructed his clerks that in case of fire, the safe was to be the first thing removed. While the building was burning furiously, a hole was cut inside of the building and the safe taken out. The Willison and Aldrich loss was estimated to be between four and $6,000 with $1,500 insurance. The firm soon opened a store in the Finout building and immediately began making plans for the erection of a large brick block at their former location. Within the year, they were back there doing business. Mr. Willison has the distinction of having conducted the hardware business at the same location for 55 years or until he sold it to the present Climax Hardware Company in 1941. The large dwelling that burned was the former home of Isaac Pierce, built by him in 1870 from the choicest lumber by John Radford, carpenter. The loss was estimated at $7,000 with insurance of $1,000. The buildings on three of the corners at the intersection of Main and Maple Streets had been destroyed by fire. In 1856, a small store located on the southwest corner, owned and operated by William E. Sawyer, burned. Then in 1876, a two-story building on the southeast corner also went up in flames. This two-story building was built in 1862 by the F&M Lodge. They kept the second floor for a lodge room and sold the lower part to Moses Hodgman. At the time that it burned, the first floor was occupied by the John Wardell Drugstore. Moses Hodgman's boot and shoe shop where he made boots, the office of the county surveyor Francis Hodgman, and the dwelling at the rear occupied by the family of William Ashby. This uh, bird. Oh, the place where the printing office is was became the hotel after this one burned. Yes, uh, Wilson went down there and uh, uh, model or remodel that, and it's been a hotel for ever since. Until Smith, who put the printing office in there? Smith. Smith did. That's from the Eid building, you see. When the Eid building was torn down, Smith was in there. 
Then he moved down there and taking took that over. It was a hotel until that time. And I used to work in that hotel. You did? What did you do? Cook. You were a cook? Sure. Uh, no wonder they have you do the oysters too, for sure. <laughs> I got over and I used to bake the pies and everything. When you were 14? Uh, 14. Mm -hmm. in, in 1834, Judge Caleb Elder, great-grandfather of Willis S. Lawrence, brought the first post office equipment to Climax and installed it in his home house, of which was just north and a bit west of the Baptist Church. He served as postmaster for 14 years. For some time his son Stephen brought mail once a week on horseback from Comstock. In 1840 a post route from Marshall to Niles passed through Climax and the mail was brought by stage and left at Climax and at a post office in South Climax conducted at the home of Julius Proctor where Monroe Knauss lives now. In 1871, when the Peninsula Railway was completed, the mail service was transferred to that road and was received daily. Judge Eldred was succeeded as postmaster by Moses Hodgman and his son Samuel T. Hodgman, who held the office until 1858 in a little building about 14 by 30 feet where Hodgman made and repaired shoes and which stood at the corner where Lowe's store is at the present time. He just put the mail in little cubby holes. Other postmasters in locations of post offices are Charles Brown, M.S. Bowen, Wellington Eldred, Char Charlie E. Hodgman, Matthew Lefevre conducted a post office in the upright of the William Nelson House when it stood just north of the Masonic Temple. Oscar Cole had an office in the dining room of the Barclay House. J.S. Buckland in the office of the Willison Implement Shed when it stood across the road from the Newmeyer Barbershop. Clement B. Gutchess, Morris H. Arnold, George Sinclair, and Eureta Nelson in the Charlie Snyder Meat Market. Wilbur C. Pond had the office in the Weaver Creamery and Mrs. Nelson also in the S.W. Clark store. Then the office was moved in 1931 to its present location and is now operated by Gordon Eldred. This is from the Climax Crescent, November 22, 1935. That's a good measure. In 1917, a movement was started by the Climax Men's Fellowship Club in cooperation with uh, J.H. Brown with the idea of erecting a monument in the village commemorating the start of the FR RFD service in Michigan, as well as to be a lasting tribute to the two pioneer carriers for their years of service out of the original office. This was the first monument of its kind to be built in the United States, dedicated to the RFD. The exact center of the base, as it was located in the center of the street was over the vitrified place section corner post set by Frank Hodgman many years ago when he was county surveyor. Years before that there was a well there was a well and the usual town pump on this spot but it was long ago filled in.
The monument is composed of 239 stones taken from the farms along the three routes out of Climax at that time. The most interesting contribution without question is the pork barrel stone, which was used in the family of the Harrisons in West Virginia during re revolutionary times. It was brought to Michigan in 1830 by William Harrison, son of Basil Harrison, who was the first white settler of Kalamazoo County. When William Harrison and his bride, America, built the first cabin on Climax Prairie, they brought the stone with them. His son, John, donated it to be placed in the monument. A copper box, well filled with various articles of historical importance, is under the capstone. Hundreds of motorists have stopped and read the inscriptions on the tablets. The construction committee were Frank L. Willison, William H. Sheldon, and Simeon E. Ewing. The monument was dedicated July 26, 1917. Another memorial to the RFD service is the attractive stone post office built by Willis L. L. Lawrence as his contribution to the service. It is also built of stones procured from places of interest to Lawrence. It was dedicated by the Kalamazoo County Rural Letter Carriers Association September 26, 1931. Right there. Yeah. The building which for many years has been known as the Eyde Building was built by William Sawyer in 1856 and was at that time the finest building anywhere near Climax Corners. It was built bo for both a store and a dwelling with a hall for public uses over the store. This hall, known as Union Hall, was used for all sorts of gatherings, religious meetings and dances, singing school, political meetings, and schoolroom. The Good Templars, Masons, Odd Fellows, and Grangers each in turn used it for a lodge room. Sawyer lived in the building and kept the store until just before the Civil War when he moved to California, leaving his property in the hands of his son-in-law, M.S. Bowen, who had there wooed and won his bride. Bowen was a lawyer, but he ran the store for a year or two when it was sold to D.H. Daniels, who kept the store until about the close of the war. Then it came into the possession of John B. Ide, in whose family it remained for a great many years until finally transferred to T. B. Eldred. It would take a pretty long article to chronicle even briefly all the occupants and the varied uses to which the building has been put since Sawyer built it. Some of them are referred to in the following verses. Its old roof now shelters a print shop, its proprietor, one woman, a baby, a doctor, a gentleman of pleasure, the chief of police, a blacksmith, a fiddler, and one nondescript. It is the home of the cereal and has been from its inception. The cereal being the climax paper. One poem entitled The Eyed Building is by Frank Hodgman. The other, dated January 12, 1905, is by Fred M. Arnold and is as follows. Here the painter has painted our buggies and sleds, and old feather bed John has dusted our beds. Here came the dentist, the man with a pull, and here Uncle Fletus has taken in wool. Here from the grocery we bought sauerkraut and soap, and from the hardware we bought reapers and rope. 
Here the laundryman rubbed or his tubs and his suds, and the dressmaker fashioned our best Sunday duds. Here the barber had his razors to shave, and he also had some shavers to raise. Here came rich men, poor men, good men, and crooks, and also an auctioneer selling some books. Here lived Mrs. Loveland of great renown, the largest person in our town. So heavy she broke through the floor, she weighed some 400 pounds or more. I remember that. And how many more came here the land only knows, so we will bring our eyed building rhyme to a close. Now pardon us, Mr. Last Week's Poet, but you omitted these people, and we wanted you to know it. <laughs> this is from June 24th, 1949, signed, Just Me, I Suspect, Jetty. And so the story of the I building went. To finish it up, I am bent. It's housed nearly every business in town and as an old landmark had renown. Then after 70 years of serving well, we had a different story to tell. A Mr. Youngs came into our town and wanted to tear the building down. Yes, he viewed the corner with pride and care. He wanted to build a standard station there to serve our town people with oil and gas and any who through our village might pass. So alas, alack, in the summer of 26, the wrecking crew started their tricks. They tore the north half of the building down to make an improvement in our town. The rest was moved to the south side of the lot for a house was made in accordance with his plot. And so the Ide building passes from view. It holds many memories for me and you. Signed, Just Me. But uh, <laughs> that Miss uh, Lovell, uh, she was a large lady and uh, she fell for this buggy and they had to saw the bucket to get her out. <laughs> I've heard him tell about it. She fell through the buggy then, not the floor of the house. No, the buggy, the buggy, floor of the buggy, right down to the buggy, right oh. the crossbars, you know. Well, this town was full of stories. <clears throat> you know, they speak about sweet gold, art gold, and um, it would be so interesting to get somebody like uh, George Sinclair and uh, and myself to talk about those old people because uh, he would remember all of those old timers like you know we that's, what I like to do. that's what Mr. Smith was suggesting George and, and old uh, Arch Toby's father and uh, where does he live? He's dead. Oh. Um, recorded from the paper. From the Climax Crescent, Friday, September 21st, 1917. One of the most daring bank robberies on record in Michigan was pulled off in this village early Saturday morning. After sawing the telegraph cable and both citizen and bell telephone cables, the robbers pried up the south window in the back part of the bank and made their entrance. Nitroglycerin was used in blowing the safe. 
the first explosion coming about 1.30 awoke practically the whole village. That must have been 1.30 in the morning. Oh, yes. There were either four or five explosions in all, the last being the most terrifying. which succeeded in demolishing the safe, after which the robbers withdrew with its contents of $6,782.55 in gold and paper money. Mr. and Mrs. Robert Haggard and Mr. and Mrs. Homer Alley, who were attending the citizen's telephone office, which is located directly over the bank, heard nothing until the burglars had made their entrance into the bank, which was followed shortly by the first explosion. Realizing what was happening, they made no attempt to spread the alarm or work the phone, but kept in the back part of the building, as it seemed as though the terrific explosion would surely wreck the front of the building. Mr. and Mrs. Ira Barkley, who lived in the rear of their store on the corner east of the bank, attempted to leave the building. Mrs. Barkley, in her night attire with a flashlight in her hand, started for their south door, followed by Mr. Barkley. A guard told them to go back if they did not wish to be shot. Mrs. Barkley, whose health had been very poor for some time, was much affected by the fright and excitement. Mr. and Mrs. Herbert Smith, editor of the Crescent, lived over their office, which is on the corner to the south of the bank. The first explosion awoke them, and immediately looking out the bedroom window, saw the man in the bank with a flashlight, and soon after detected the guard standing most of the time on the corner. This was soon followed by a second explosion. Mr. Smith fully realized the situation and commanding view of five windows from his residence overlooking the bank less than five rods away, but without, without ammunition for a double-barrel shotgun, which was in the house at the time, and did not feel inclined to take his chances on the street, leaving his wife and child behind, although he left later after getting them uh, with Mr. and Mrs. Searles living next door. Just before the third explosion, Melvin Scramlin left his home with a revolver and started toward the town, fully knowing the nature of the proceedings. He fired directly in the direction of the bank when only a few rods from his house, which shot was responded to by one of the guards on the corner by the bank. Mr. Scramlin then stepped behind a tree, fired twice in the same direction, and was answered by another shot from the guard. This emptied Mr. Scramlin's uh, revolver, he returned to the house and proceeded to put his rifle into readiness and then returned to the street. Fired, but no response came to this, for during the time the fourth explosion had been made and the Yegman had left. He then called Frank Wilson, who went immediately to the Bell Telephone Office and noticing and notified the sheriff as to what had happened. Well, now, oh, the, the wire to Kalamazoo was not in the cable, also the Augusta wire from the citizen's office. Mr. Scramlin, together with others, came to the bank. Mrs. Myrtle Pierce, who lives in the Osgood building, left her home by the rear door after the third explosion and hurried to the home of Melvin Griffith and called to them and was standing on their back porch at the time the shots were exchanged by Mr. Scramlin and the guard. Mrs. Moon, who lives upstairs in the Osgood building, says that she was ordered away from a window when she stuck her head out. George Sinclair left his door and went to the street, but immediately took refuge again. Don't blame me. 
Dr. Bates attempted to leave his house at the time of the shooting, but said the lead was lying, flying too thick and fast for him and went back in. Frank Snyder started uptown with a shotgun, but stopped during the shooting. Harry Saunders saw the two men come to the depot and cut the telegraph cable. He blew out his light and got a revolver he had there, but he did not attempt to fire. After the men had left, he ventured out and went around and roused Lewis Walter. A search was made to ascertain the direction the safe floors took and found tracks leading west to the first corner, then to the depot, probably to see if their work had been successful. And from there down the road by the railroad to the crossing, thence west one mile to the four corners where evidence showed they had left their auto with a third party guarding it. Mrs. Martha Wilson said that she could hear two men slowly running by their house east just before the citizens got to the bank corner after the robbery and believed that they were two of the guards. The sheriff's force had arrived in the meantime and they with several climax citizens started in pursuit. The trail led south and was easily followed until reaching Athens when early morning machines driving spoilt the track. Here the local people turned towards home and Sheriff Eaton and his force journeyed on. They succeeded in tracking the machine as far as Union City and here temporarily lost their track. Although they are working desperately on the case, we can announce nothing definite at present. It is their belief that there were five in the automobile. It is impossible to say just how many men there were in the deal as evidence varies as evidence very, it is known, however, that one man guarded the bank corner. Those in the telephone office say they could hear a man on the first landing of the stairway. Mrs. Myrtle Pierce and Mrs. Uh, Moon said they saw one of the men standing in front of the lumber office. Mr. and Mrs. Willis Lawrence and Frank and Genevieve McElvain a state that they plainly saw someone guarding the telephone office during the whole performance until the shooting when he walked toward the main four corners. Mr. Sinclair states that the bank was fully protected with burglar insurance, which will more than cover the loss. A temporary safe is expected tomorrow to use until the new one arrives, which will be larger and stronger. Well, that's... Uh... Um, did Climax hear about the false armistice first, or...? Well, that was the day before. Yeah. Yes, they heard it, but this... I was coming from Kalamazoo, and we come into Climax, and on my way in, uh, give it on my uh, radio that uh, the armistice had been signed. And, of course, the fire department and everybody get out of their automobiles and run around the streets there. It was quite a celebration. This is the first world war? No, the second one. That'd be the second one. Yeah. Oh, the first one, yes. I remember when the second world war was. You mean the first one? Oh, the first one, yes. Yeah. That's the one that... Um, yes, that, uh, of course. That was 11 o'clock in the morning. 11 o'clock. And we left today at 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I was husking corn, and I could hear all the whistles and bells and everything ringing all over the country. You could hear the whistles and battle creek in Kalamazoo, and everything at 11 o'clock in the morning, you know. And I said to the fellow that was husking corn, I said, he was hard of hearing. I said, uh, I can just hear every, the bells are ringing and the whistles are blowing, 
Oh, he says, Bob, everything's all gone to hell now. <laughs> he didn't, you know, he was a rough old fellow. Uh, when I got home, I found that the armistice consigned and the war was over. Was there any particular celebration here in town? Not particularly, only just everybody was happy. It's been going for some time, you know. Mm -hmm. But I thought maybe there was some special celebration. No, somewhere. I don't think there was any special celebration here in town. I don't remember. I was old enough to remember it all. How about Fourth of July when you were a kid? How did they celebrate? Well, uh, those uh, celebrations were video really like uh, the old time. They used to have a blacksmith shoot the anvils in the morning, you know. Tom Martin used to always shoot his anvil. How's they shoot an anvil? Well, they put powder in it some way and shoot the anvil. Did you ever hear tell no. them? Like that? Always shoot the anvil on the 4th of July. <laughs> I never heard of that. Oh, well, regardless. That's what they always used to shoot. The uh, uh, celebrations uh, start off in the morning. When they shoot the anvil. Now, what, what they've done, I don't know. Well, was there a general picnic or general oh, no. family celebrations? Or? Well, there used to be picnics and such a thing as that, but... Uh, uh, no general gathering or general... Well, uh, years ago they used to have horse races and uh, such things as that on Fort July. Oh, yeah. Public speakers? Oh, yeah. That goes with it. You know, politics is a rule. Oh, who were the earliest teachers you can remember? Oh, Mary, Mary Longman was the earliest one I can remember. What relation did she to say Vernon Longman? Well, Vernon Longman's father and her brothers. He was a superintendent here. Which school did you go to school in? One, two, three, or four? Well, I went to school down in the Harrison District most of the time, but I came up here uh, in 1907. And uh, at that time, it was all the name of Hamilton was a superintendent. Do you know anything about this men's fellowship club that's... For sure, I got the picture. Oh, have you? I got everything. Where is that picture, Mother? Well, that right was here. Uh, the other day. Huh? It's right around here somewhere. Yes, I've got the picture of that fellowship club that uh, she speaks about in that... Uh, well, were they... What was their purpose? Sort of like a rotary is now? Sort, sort of a rotary. Do community work. And that's what the... Uh, to begin with, they... Uh, uh, they started this fellowship club uh, to do some good. Well, Jimmy Brown uh, come in here and got that uh, uh, rural thing going, you know. And then when they dedicated the monument, of course, they sponsored that, as you'll see on the yeah. stone. Mm -hmm. They furnished one of the plaques, I think, too. Yeah, I wish you um, had that picture. Uh, it's how here long was it? active, I mean, was it just one or two Oh, years? I should say, uh, oh no, longer than that. I should say that it was active ten years. And it wasn't church affiliated? Or no, affiliated, no, it was no, it was just a fellowship club. Just like the Rotary now? The way they done it, it was about, uh, oh, I should say 60, 75 members. 
and they divide up into they call them squads there was 15 in a squad and uh, like this month uh, this squad would put on the supper and uh, in the next month uh, a different squad so you'd be about one squad during the year that uh, had to put the supper on that was, I had that just here, just the other day. I picked somebody sent for it, and uh, I, I wanted to see it because uh, they said that I looked, or Dwayne looks just like I did at that time. It has all the old well, I think Dwayne looks an awful lot like you. Um, what can you tell me about Masonic history when the lodge was started? Oh, golly, that, I could get the dates of it uh, for you up to. Um, well, I've got some of the dates here somewhere uh, in regard to uh, the dates when they were chartered and all that. Do you, I know it was a 59th lodge in the state, but yeah. do you know uh, where it stands is in being conti continuously active? It's much higher than that because some of the lodges have died out, people have moved away and they've been closed down. That, that date, I'd have to look up and get it together because it, it, I have got quite a lot. I've got the 75th uh, uh, anniversary, and then I've also got the 100th anniversary, and it, uh, it tells in there. Well, like I said, kind of an abrupt ending out of nowhere, but I still think there was a lot to learn about and things to take away from this conversation with Ruth Harvey and Dwayne Drollett Sr. As I mentioned on the front end of this podcast, I want to circle back on the back end of the podcast to talk about my attempt to purchase Crescent Publishing Incorporated, a.k.a. the Climax Crescent. Now, first of all, the keyword here is attempt. Attempt. This is not a done deal, and there are a lot of moving parts and things that need to happen kind of in a specific order for this to even become a reality. Number one is I have a lot of loose ends in Illinois that I have to tie up. I wish I could snap my fingers and sell my house and settle things at my job and all of those kinds of matters, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And then you add to that, I had a pro wrestling company called Rise. It actually got fairly successful. We were touring the U.S., had even done some international stuff. But then when that pandemic happened... Well, running a pro wrestling company wasn't so lucrative because when people could no longer gather, uh, you kind of couldn't have shows, you couldn't film the shows to sell the videos, we couldn't do our training anymore, so basically the business went belly up thanks to the pandemic. Not crying about it, it is what it is, but because of some settlements with the legal end of that business and dissolving it, I can't just clap my hands and sell my house. There's a lot of moving parts in there, and I'm not going to spill all my personal situation out there, but let's just summarize it all by saying it's a little complicated, but not insurmountable. Now, even if we all could clap our hands, click our heels, or whatever magic trigger we used, if we could wrap this all up tomorrow, some of the ideas I have with the acquisition of the Crescent would take probably at least three to five years to execute. So there's some short-term and some long-term goals here if the acquisition is successful. The first and probably most important bullet point of all the different business goals would be keeping everything that you already love in the weekly paper. I know a lot of city folk may have a mantra of print is dead, but I lived in a small town, I come from a small town, I understand the importance of 
the small town and the weekly newspaper, and that's how so many people get their news, and I don't want to change a darn thing about that if this acquisition is successful. So the idea is to keep everything that we already know and love and just add more layers to it to make it more of a media company. One facet of it would be this podcast. This would just be part of an overall Crescent Publishing Incorporated entity getting more focused on a wider scope of media. I would also love to utilize different video streaming services, including some live feeds to share more news and more human interest stories more often and in different ways to showcase the news, events, the people, and the businesses of Climax Scott's all the more often. And one that's going to take a little bit longer, and there's even more moving parts that I'm not going to open the can of worms here on this podcast, but I have a vision of creating a Climax Scott's Museum. Now, the plan for the museum, I can't say a lot more because when I'm saying some things would take realistically several years to bring to fruition, the museum has the most moving parts. I don't want to say much more about that right now because that involves some more people and some organizations and things that a lot of ducks would have to get in a lot of rows, but that would be the overall goal. Keep the paper, keep this podcast, utilize more video streaming services to get more news out there more often and in different ways. Now, in time, there will be some variety of fundraiser, a Kickstarter, a GoFundMe, or some other form of publicly visible fundraising effort but I do not even want to start that until some of the bigger rocks are more concrete in this situation. So there is more to come, but I just want to share with everybody kind of where everything is right now. And frankly, I'm kind of at a stalemate until I hear some information from my lawyers, but I don't think it's doom and gloom. It's just uh, we're kind of at the mercy of other people who aren't famous for calling me back in a timely way. But that is where things are at with my intentions and my attempt to purchase the Climax Crescent. And with that, it's time to bring another episode to a close. As usual, I thank everyone for listening, and I thank everyone for liking, sharing, following, subscribing on whatever feeds those may be at ClimaxThePodcast.com. The more you interact with this show and all things surrounding it, the more eyes we get on social media and the more ears we get on this podcast. If we want to keep this podcast going, we just have to get as many ears as possible on it. So thank you all for all you do every week, listening yourselves and sharing it with your friends and family from the Climax Scots community and beyond. And that puts a bow here on episode six and a good one-two punch. Next week in episode seven, we hear from Dwayne Drowlett Jr. Thanks again for listening, everybody. I'll talk to you real soon, and thanks for tuning in to Climax the Podcast, Love Letter to a Small Town.